Would you uh, mind turning to Isaiah 59? We are, uh, I think that's page 524 in uh, the Bibles in the seats. It's about halfway through the book. And I'm going to run the risk of spoiling an old Christmas carol for you here. If, uh, on the off chance that some of you are not lyrics people, if you're a lyrics person, you just got to know this. And if you're not a lyrics person, um, I'm sorry, it's time to know what you've been singing. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas carols is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. It was popularized by Judy Garland in the 40s. Goes, I'm only going to do this once, but like, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Like that, you got it. No, no encore. Though it's very difficult to read the verses and not like want to. <clears throat> it is possibly, quite possibly, the saddest Christmas carol we have. <clears throat> it, if you ever listen to the lyrics, it's, it's sad. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I mean, even that phrase, it's kind of sad. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. What it's saying is, is this year was not so good. The original lyrics that never really made it to print were even uh, were far more morose than that. And uh, <clears throat> they were struck and rewritten. Verse 2, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. The suggestion there is that the troubles are presently not miles away, that they are you, the singer and the person to whom they're singing, they are in the midst of trouble. It's hard not to sing it, but here we are as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, faithful friends who are dear to us. The original lyrics was, will be near to us once more. So in the original the ones sung by Judy Garland in the 40s, <clears throat> the faithful friends who are dear to us were not presently near to us. Now, when Frank Sinatra redid this song, he changed that line. So faithful friends who are dear to us, you probably know, gather near to us once more. That's the one that we're probably most familiar with. He changed it because it was too sad. It's the fourth verse that has been really, really messed with. This is the original Someday soon, we all will be together. If the fates allow, okay, that's what caught me in the car. Was I thought it was if the Lord allows, but it's if the fates allow. It was changed by Sinatra again. I don't know how close he was to the Lord, but good on him there. Okay, now you probably know this one, and I can't even if I wanted to sing this line, but hang a shining star upon the highest bough. It's kind of a big sound. That's probably what we know. The actual phrase, if you hear it, was until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. That's what Judy Garland sang. Until then, we have to muddle through somehow. So next year, our troubles will be out of sight. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Maybe our friends will be near to us if the fates allow. Until then, we have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Woo! Like, I was. <clears throat> that's kind of sad. 
is that Christmas. You know, this interesting reflection, this, this, so this deserves to be in the Christmas record of music, if only for the sake that many of us have had some Christmas that feels this way. So at, at one level, it's cathartic at times to sing this. Um, this was written during the Second World War. I know the loneliness of spent two Christmases away from home. And I know how that feels. And there's a need for things like this and I'll be home for Christmas to have a place in the spirit. But there are some things that come out of this song that we just sing. Like, is Christmas little? (laughs) You know, when we, uh, the idea that kind of comes through the song is that Christmas has entirely become the object of human sentimentality. That... In the song, Christmas is not a great holy day celebrating the advent of Christ. It's a sentimental moment that they're trying to kind of salvage as as well as they can in the season. That that is something that I would say we understand. I mean, we probably have all done that at some level. Christmas is largely sentimental. Next year, Christmas falls on Sunday. That becomes a crisis in almost every home. What do we do? Because the holy day and the sentiment clash. And I don't know what you do, by the way. I'm not going to guilt you. But it's one of those examples. You know, here, this is, this is the little side of Christmas. It's just sentiment. And do we simply wait for next year? Is, is our hope in next year? That's another question. <clears throat> is Christmas small? You know, when we talk about the birth of the Christ child and when we, we fixate on the smallness, we, we lose something. There is some, Christmas is the advent of God to mankind. That's not small, right? And is our, is our life simply hoping for better next year? Maybe next year will be better if the fates allow. That's, I'm not, I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you kind of how you live. And do we simply muddle through? The song probably deserves to be sung that way just because it evokes in us some important questions. Do we muddle through? Do we just hope next year will be better? <clears throat> Well, I want, us to, I want us to take that thought into the scriptures <clears throat> and we're on our way to answering it. We'll answer it towards the very end. I suppose we know the answer because um, all of those are sad things so the answer is no to that. But to arrive at it in a meaningful way. In Isaiah 59, um, well, <clears throat> the, the, the theme we've been using for the month has uh, been anchored around the wise men. These wise men in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, they show up to King Herod's court and it says, um, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. That's what they said. And kind of the the idea we've been imagining with is, um, where did the wise men get their information what were they reading? Because they clearly knew more than a star might have simply told them. And we pushed that question a little farther and said, is it possible, or 
Um, can we imagine that the wise men had some Old Testament scripture that they were meditating on and studying, and that built in them the, the conviction of anticipation of the coming of our Lord, and then that conviction was met with a star, and that caused them to rise and go. That was kind of the, 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 the image that propelled us into this study of Isaiah, which is what it's turned out. It's just been a study of Isaiah. Today we find ourselves in the very last section of Isaiah, Isaiah is commonly understood as being broken to three large sections. So 1 to 39, 40 to 54, and 55 to 66. And today we are in that final section. And a very uh, interesting question that the religious of the time are asking about the Lord. So I'm going to read a few verses here. Just We'll probably just walk through a couple verses at a time in 59. Uh, I will say 59 presupposes a question, which is, what went wrong? What's wrong with this year? <laughs> if you want to think of it in terms of uh, the carol. What's wrong with this? Who made a mistake here? Is God weak? Okay. Why are we muddling through life? This is what the first two verses of 59 say. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. That's the first two verses. Why are things bad? Why are we in trouble? That's what this, the larger, we could call them the Jewish community, but I think it would be very, very reflective of our East Coast people, which have some religious heritage. Almost everybody out here has some religious heritage, some foot in a Catholic or Presbyterian or some Christian tradition, and have seen generations in their family who did religious things kind of out of habit, but not out of heart, went through motions, assumed they were religiously good enough uh, through practice, okay? That, when we talk about Israel, we're talking about that, okay? Very, very familiar to us. Life is the best commentary on ancient Israel. And they're wondering, why are things wrong? And the Lord says, well, two things you can know. It's not that I'm too weak to fix it, and it's not that I can't hear you. My hearing is just fine, and my arm is perfectly strong. He says, the reason your plight is great is because of your sin and your iniquities. That's what he says. Iniquities is... A close synonym to sin, it implies a little bit more immoral intent. Okay, sin could be a mistake. You broke a rule. Iniquity is immorality. In the book of Isaiah, the word iniquity is used 27 times. Six of them are in this chapter. Almost a quarter of the times it's used in Isaiah is right here. He says, your sins, in verse 2, have made a separation between you and God. There's this gulf between you and the Lord. 
and God chooses not to hear you because of your sinfulness. That's, that's the point of the first two verses. Now, three and on expound to de- go on to describe the nature of their sinfulness, okay? In very beautiful poetry. It's poetry uh, about a very terrible thing, I suppose, but it, nonetheless, it's beautiful poetry. Let me just read three and four to you. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Do you hear that? Your hand, your fingers. Your lips, your tongue. It really is artful. Can you say that about a terrible hard word? But it was well done. The things you do are wicked. The things you say are wicked is the meaning. Verse four, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Not only the things they do are wicked, the things they say are wicked, but they have incubated and fostered an environment, a culture that undermines justice and truth. That's what it's saying. It says you're playing the culture. And he uses this phrase of conception and birth. You know, conceiving and birth are typically life-giving, high-minded notions. He says here, you conceive mischief and you give birth to iniquity. One translator, instead of mischief, uses the word chaos, which I just think is a... I like it because it's a nice word. It helps the idea. I was trying to think not not to let this escape us, uh, this teaching fall on us. I mean, we, uh, many of us are... uh, among the redeemed who are growing closer to the Lord. So some of this might be in the rearview mirror, but not all of this. We should still certainly be able to remember it. I remember as a child, I was a toy returner. I'd get a toy, I'd play with it, I'd grow tired of it, tired of it, and then I would convince myself it had some flaw and bring it back to Toys R Us. I did it many times until I was disciplined out of it for which I'm grateful. Um, But this is that season where many families who think they're righteous are going to get something they don't want, use it a little bit, put it back in the box and bring it back to Target. You know, I'm just pointing to little things that kind of sow themselves in our own community. This is the time where people make white lies about their taxes. You know, sometimes we think... uh, we are entitled to things by virtue of our comparative smallness. Like it's just Target. It's just J.C. Penney or Macy's or wherever you, and, you know, It doesn't hurt them. By their big evil industry in the first place. We do this. We entitle ourselves by virtue of our comparative smallness. We do iniquity and wickedness. We rewrite the rules. I just want to say there's things that should make us slow down a little. Look at five and six. The imagery is, is so good. Here's, here's the result of their sinfulness. You ready? They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. It's so creepy. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. 
Their works are works of iniquity. The deeds of violence are in their hands. Think of the picture. The picture is, um, as a person might hatch chicken eggs or cook with chickens, eat eggs, I mean, docile, small, fragile things, things that are so harmless. The, the, the teaching is, is in their iniquity and in their sin, great harm is done from seemingly benign things. A little viper is as venomous as its parent. They're doing things that look harmless. They're playing with fire, is the idea there. And then the whole idea of weaving clothing out of spider's webs. Just allow that. It's very sophisticated. Allow the idea. It's giving you the idea to imagine. Can you imagine putting on a coat of webbing? He's saying... All of their effort is so vain. Like this webbing, it doesn't really clothe them. Who would want to wear it? The fruit of their labor is death and futility. Look at seven through eight. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them knows peace. No one who treads on them. It's very different from Isaiah 40, which we read a few weeks ago, which said this, a voice cries, in the wilderness make a highway for our God. Right? The valleys will be raised up, and the high mountains will be laid low, and the glory of the Lord will come. There's this idea of making a straight road for God. Here, you have in their activities and in their labor, they're making crooked paths to dark places. If you're on the path of the wicked, where is it going to take you? That's how uh, the word describes them. They want to know why is why are they stuck in the the disappointment of this year? Why are things not as they want? Why is there injustice around them? And he's saying, you've done it. You've done it to yourself. And the separation you've built between you and I is such that I hear you and I choose not to hear you. Because you're not crying out with a repentant heart. Now I'm going to read 9 through, I guess 9 through 11. Uh, together, uh, and there's one very significant difference between this and the earlier readings. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Now, some of the conclusions here should not be surprising. What is very significant is the change in the voice. Did you see it? Three through eight is it has a finger pointing. You do this. You or they. 
It's the speaker talking about them. It's accusatory. That's what it is. It's a kind of a parent talking to a rebellious child. You behave this way. You want to know why we don't help? Here's why we don't help, because you, okay, that changes entirely in the ninth verse. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope, we grope, we stumble, we growl, we hope. I think it's very significant. There's a huge difference between a person who is doing wickedness and a person who sees the wickedness they're doing. Huge difference. That person is not very far away from God. The one who can confess, regrettably confess. I don't mean see their wickedness and celebrate. I mean see their wickedness for what it really is. See their wickedness. Those who see that they're blind are on the way to sight. There's this shift from the accusation of their wickedness to the owning of their wickedness. Ah. I think it is, in, in the book of Romans, um, I, I, I typically call the shift from being wicked to being wretched. You know, Paul eventually says, oh, wretched man that I am. There's a gloriousness in being wretched. Wretched is, there is something wrong with me. Because then God can help you. And it seems to be that the, t- the tenor of, of the chapter changes from someone having to point out their wickedness, which you know how that can be with someone who's hard-hearted, is you could say it all day long and they're not going to have ears to hear it. When they hear it and they see it and they hate it, ah, they are not far from God. We grope like those who have no eyes. You hear the futility in it, the helplessness, the powerlessness? We want, he says, justice is far from us. We want it, but it doesn't overtake us. We hope for light, but we don't get it. We grope around. All we can do is groan like a bear and moan like a dove. They're absolutely helpless in the realization of their sin. This is how it's said. Let me uh, read 12 and 13. It's said really well here. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. The, the, the Hebrew is a little bit, uh, another way to read that would be our sins are heaped up in front of you. That would be the right image. All of my sins are in a giant heap that sit between the separation of me and God. In other words, for me to see God, I have to kind of, it's almost the image, is I have to stare through the pile of sinful trash in my life to see God. And for the Lord to deal with me, that is all in the way. And that separation, all of my sin is in the middle of that. This big pile of sin, that's what they're saying. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. This pile of garbage of junk in our lives, is testimony against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. And he mentions them, transgressing, denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart of lying words. He says, they're all in front of me. They're in front of me and they're between me and you. 
And you get a conclusion in 14. 14 and the first half of 15 are kind of the conclusion of the matter. You can almost say, therefore, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Man, those words, are they written for our time or what? Justice is turned back. Justice is trying, the image is justice is trying to come into the city and it's turned away at the gate. And righteousness can't go into the city. It sits aloft on the hills afar and looks down into the city. And why can they not go in the city? Because truth stumbles in the public squares. Justice and righteousness aren't going to come into the city where truth is being abused. Every time truth tries to get up, it gets knocked back down again. That's the image. It's being beat and abused and spit upon and it's having a crown of thorn put on its head and it's being tossed on a cross. That's what's happening to truth in the public square. And as a result, justice and righteousness stand far off. Justice and righteousness are the fruit, the gift, the product of a society that owns truth. That's what it's saying. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Think of that. It means the man who stands up for the right things gets slammed. They want to know, starts off, why are things bad? He says, well, it's not because God's weak. And this is old time gospel is what this is. Right? It's not God's, not, it's not God's fault. It's man's fault. God's perfectly strong to ha- handle this. But our iniquities have brought this on ourselves. And we are helpless in our iniquities. Once we can see it, once we can see it and own it, like in 9 through 13, then we see that we are, in fact, helpless in the midst of it. We're not strong enough. The most we can do is groan to the Lord about it because our sins are ever between us and him. And the result of that is that Justice and righteousness are out the window. Now, this, it gets better. It's about as happy as the song, right? Look what happens when the Lord sees it. This is the second half of 15. <clears throat> the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Now, think of that. The Lord looks down. The Lord sees the mess. The Lord desires that there would, in fact, be justice. All through, all through Isaiah, justice has been a theme. We read justice in week one when we read Isaiah 9. Jesus Christ, it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And at the very end, it says that he will be the king of justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So it's been a major theme through all this. It showed up in 9, it showed up in 11 that we read, it showed up in 40 and 42 that we read. It's been all the way through. The Lord looks down on the earth and he longs for the earth to be a place of justice and righteousness. But it says when he looked down, there was no one that he could look to to redeem it. He couldn't raise up a judge or anoint a new king or call out a priest or send a new prophet. He has to do it himself. That's what it's saying here in 16. 
He has to do it himself. By his own arm, he brought salvation. And his own righteousness upheld him. We know this, right? We know who this is. Look at 17 and 18. These are just great verses. He put on righteousness as a a breastplate and a helmet of salvation for his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. These phrases in Ephesians, some of you may think this sounds like Paul in Ephesians 4 putting on the the armor of God. You know, the more Old Testament I read, the more I realize the New Testament's not original. It's, uh, it's marvelous plagiarism. I mean, Paul is living in Isaiah when he's writing that. He's saying to us, arm yourselves like the Lord. Be in his army. And we see here in his, in his arraignment, he's dressed for salvation and for vengeance, right alongside one or the other. In fact, in the 20th verse is this hope, right? It says, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. A redeemer. So this, this glorious Lord coming, arrayed for battle, and for judgment and for vengeance is also called Redeemer to those who turn from transgression. This is where we would, I, I would be very clear. Like, we're not saved by our good works, okay? We can toss that out of the window. Good works do not save us. However, our sinfulness is absolutely crucial to appreciating what God has done for us. So our bad works, we must understand our bad works. It's our failure to do good works, which is absolutely central to our need for salvation. You see, to those who do not transgress, the Lord comes as an avenger. To those who turn, excuse me, who turn from their transgressions, the Lord comes as a redeemer. To those who who see their sin for what it is, piled up between them and the Lord, groan. Oh, Lord, I've been so blind. To those, the Lord is a redeemer. Now, 21 is an interesting verse. Translators don't know exactly how to write it. Do you notice in your Bible it looks a little different? It probably looks like regular type. There's reasons for that. Um, sounds like an additional word. If you look at the end of 20, it ends with declares the Lord. That's often the way a prophet signs out. <clears throat> so that and a few other reasons. Make them format it the way they do, but but nonetheless, it's it's connected in meaning. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. 
my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So if we were just to arc this whole account, this is, this is essentially the book of Romans, just right in front of us. There's a problem. God is not the problem. We're the problem. And the problem is our sinfulness. And we're helpless in dealing with our sinfulness. The best we can hope to do is to see it for what it is and groan before the Lord, to be wretched before the Lord. And when the Lord sees that, he who is desirous of bringing justice in the earth will send his son and his son will come and bring to those who repent from their sins, the Lord brings grace and he becomes our redeemer. And he puts a spirit on us and the purpose of his spirit on us is so that his words, his truth might stand up in our public square that it might remain with us and our generations and the generations that come after. The Lord is essentially saying, I've put my spirit in you because I want to create a new city and a new place where truth can stand erect and where there can be justice and righteousness because if my truth is there standing, the fruit of it is justice and righteousness. I mean, that, that's... This is 700 years before Christ and that theology is... Romans has been plagiarized. It's sitting here. So I'll, I guess I'll end with this question. I mean, because we, even more, they have even more work to do than we did. I mean, Christ has come, and Christ has brought us this hope. Nonetheless, it's not entirely realized. Here we are, still living in an unjust, in an unjust land. You know, I, as much as you try to put politics aside, the, facts that my, the fact that my tax money, your tax money, funds Planned Parenthood is evil. It is iniquity. It is truth stumbling in the public square. How many other things could we point to? I mean, this, this is... It's a sense, like the carol, <laughs> from the perspective of truth and justice and righteousness, I don't, I would be hard-pressed to say we're living in a good year. Maybe it'll be better next year. And so what do we do? What do we do? When, when truth is stumbling and when justice is turned back and where when righteousness stands afar off and looks down, when we in the city are going to have, we can't have, not reasonably expect to have a fair shake on justice or righteousness, what do we do? do? Do we muddle through? Is that the call of the Christian? Because Jesus hasn't come, we're waiting for him to come again and he'll deal with it all then, but what do we do until then? Do we just have to muddle through somehow? Chapter 60 is the response, which I think it's so awesome that it comes after 59. I'm going to just read verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That verse is not speaking about Jesus. That verse is speaking about God's people. 
you arise and shine. That's what it's saying. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Who's rising? We're rising. Who's bright? We're bright. Who's shining? We're shining. This is, there's this sense. The beauty of the Christian life is no matter how much injustice, no matter how much unrighteousness, no matter how truth stumbles in the public square, God's spirit has been laid on us and his truth is in us and it stands erect. And we are become our own people. We rise above whatever definition of people we used to be. We rise above family. We rise above nation. We rise above all of those things to become the people of God. And in the, among the people of God, the light of truth should shine. And, and, the, and the writer is saying, and when you rise up and shine, the world will be attracted to it. It's a soft command of God to say, my people must always be optimistic. Not naive about the world, but optimistic and hopeful about God. We have a greater king. We have a greater hope. We have a role here, and our role here is to be bright. Lift up your eyes all around and see, verse 4. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters will be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. This is us he's talking about. By extension, it's Israel. It's us. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nabioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. That's what the Lord is saying about us. If you found from 60 to 61 to 62, you'd say the same thing. 61 is the scroll that Jesus Christ unfurled when he went to Nazareth and began to pray. The spirit of God is upon you because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you remember that? This is the hope. Jesus Christ comes to a dark world, comes to a world with no justice, and in that brings the brightness of hope. Sixty-two says the same thing. Over and over and over again. It ends this way, and they shall be called holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. We as Christians do not muddle through. We rise up. Not because we have to change. It's not if we solve world hunger, then we're proud of ourselves. It's not it. We rise up because God is in us and because his truth is with us. I pray that would be our year coming up. Let's pray. Lord, 
We ask of you, Lord, to adjust our spirit in whatever way is needed, Lord, whether it's uh, we're here and we're living amidst sin and iniquity and not convicted of it, Lord, I pray you would bring conviction. Lord, if it's someone here who sees their sin and is frustrated and groaning, I pray you would bring redemption. Remind them that you've come, that you sent your son to redeem those who turn from their transgressions. And Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would rise to be more than the census of the times. I pray, Lord, that we would not slave the notion of the victory of the church to uh, the environment around us, but know that our victory is in Christ. And we are to bring his victory to a failing state. We pray this, Lord, for this year and the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.